This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today's topic is um, emergency medicine. It's a joint effort of um, our team from UC San Diego Emergency Medicine Department and from our friends at West Health. Um, they will discuss um, new technologies and specialized patient care in the emergency room. This has become an, an interesting topic um, recently. I, I noticed several, several signs that tried to teach people how to use emergency medicine, how to use the emergency room. I saw one sign that, for example, it says, bee sting, urgent care, beehive, emergency care. I saw another sign that said, um, if you step on a mouse trap, urgent care. If you step on a bear trap, emergency care. So hopefully we'll, we'll learn more about how you use uh, urgent care and emergency medicine um, from this, um, these presentations. I'd like to introduce um, our team. Um, first from UC San Diego is the um, uh, CEO of UC San Diego Health, um, Patty Mason. Um, then um, Dr. Ted Chan, who's professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine. And then, sorry. Um, and then um, Chris Coyne, who's assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine, radiation medicine, and applied science. And um, Dr. Vishal Toilia, who is the medical director of the um, Gary and Mae West Senior Emergency Care Unit at UC San Diego. Um, then we'll have um, two speakers from West Health. Um, our first is Dr. Zia Agha, who is the chief medical officer and executive vice president of West Health. And um, um, last is um, Shelly Lyford, who is the president and CEO of West Health and the Gary and Mary West Foundation. So to start us off, I'd like to introduce um, my friend and colleague, um, Patty Mason, the CEO of UC San Diego Health. Patty. Hi, and welcome everybody. I am thrilled today to um, introduce our emergency department team. And I just wanna spend a couple minutes telling you uh, about what our last several years have been like um, prior to the pandemic. Um, we opened the first Gary and Mary West geriatric emergency department. It was the first level one unit. It was the first of its kind, I think west of the, I like to say west of New Jersey. Um, just to make the point. And we did an incredible renovation of our emergency department to create space for our geriatric patients um, because of the, the wonderful partnership and support from Gary and Mary West and, and Shelly, um, who's been a tremendous partner. And then over 500 days ago, um, the first planes arrived from Wuhan, China with our very first um, uh, COVID patients. And the last... Um, 18 months and longer have been just a, an incredible um, effort on the part of our emergency department. If you can imagine putting yourself in the shoes of our faculty and our staff in early March of 2020, walking into emergency room, not knowing who had COVID, who didn't, what this virus was, how contagious it was, what you needed to protect yourself. Imagine if you had family at home, uh, small kids or, or, or seniors at home that you had to care for, but you were walking into the emergency department every day taking care of um, patients who could or couldn't be spreading a virus to you that could actually take your life. Um, that's what our emergency faculty did over the last 18 months. 
And it has been a very, very challenging time. They've been, you know, at the tip of the spear and managing uh, the, the pandemic in the emergency department. And then finally, as we got through this pandemic and thought that we were kind of over the hump, um, started seeing all the numbers decline. Our uh, colleagues across the street had um, what was a, a huge, as you're all aware, a huge cyber disaster. Um, which shut everything down. And uh, we had patients flowing over to our emergency department um, like never before, more, more volume, more patients than we've ever had to see. We had to reopen all of our tents. The tents that we use for COVID testing and, and uh, COVID care were reopened so that we could take care of this overflow of patients from across the street. And it has been, uh, again, an, just an incredible lift. And this group of leaders and this group of um, physician scientists, they never complained. Uh, well, they complained a little bit, maybe early. Uh, I hope you're laughing, Ted. Um, but uh, it's been an incredible journey. And now as we come out of all of these crises and look forward, um, we're excited to, to um, continue to expand care in our emergency departments. We will be looking to replace our emergency department in our Hillcrest Hospital when we replace that, that hospital. Um, so it's with great, great respect and honor that I introduce uh, Dr. Ted Chan, our, our chair of emergency uh, medicine. So Ted, take it away. Well, thank you, Patty, for all your leadership this past year. It's been an unprecedented year and really for all the your years of support for all the initiatives that we've had in the emergency department. And thank you also to Vice Chancellor Brenner. It's a real honor to, uh, be a part of this uh, presentation here. And I have six minutes to talk a little bit about the evolution and future of emergency care. So let me get started here. So really emergency medicine is one of the newest specialties in the house of medicine and really began in 1960s uh, when the state of emergency care in this country was really uh, moribund. You know, emergency departments were staffed by uh, physicians and providers who were not trained specifically in acute care. They were often moonlighting residents in other programs like dermatology or ophthalmology. Uh, and so this was the situation. And yet uh, in the 1960s, after Korea and the Vietnam War, there were a lot of advances in trauma care in the military setting that we had not brought to this country. This, this country was facing a, an enormous population growth as well as the construction of large highway system and transportation system that was leading to a lot of trauma uh, uh, issues and injuries, uh, which our emergency care system was not prepared for. And so in 1966, the National Academy of Sciences put out a report on this problem. It was called the Accidental Death and Disability, the ne Neglected Disease of Modern Society. And that really catalyzed uh, work on developing emergency care systems throughout the country and setting standards for training physicians who would staff emergency departments. In 1970, our own American College of Emergency Physicians was born. And I, I put the logo here only to point out that our logo is designed as the empty square. And this was uh, to represent the fact that emergency medicine was the missing square uh, in the house of medicine. So since 1960 and over the last 50 years, there's been tremendous success. And our mantra in emergency medicine has been that we will provide care for anyone, anything at any time. And that success has brought, been seen in the number of patients who come to the emergency department, over 130 million visits uh, in 2018. That's a rise from 60 and 70 million in the 70s and 80s, so nearly double. Uh, and now more than half of all hospital admissions come through the emergency department. The emergency department is the way to inpatient care in this country. 
our healthcare system now relies on emergency departments, not just for life-saving and emergency care, but the fact that it's accessible 24-7 and on weekends. It is, often is the diagnostic center to evaluate urgent conditions. And oftentimes, primary care physicians will refer patients from clinics. Uh, some of you may have been referred to the emergency department because of the speed at which diagnostic tests and evaluations can be conducted. And as Patty mentioned, uh, we have become the center for disaster and mass casualty response in terms of healthcare in this country, as we saw during this COVID pandemic. Um, and we are the site for access for care to all. Uh, MTALA, maybe some of you may be familiar with the, the Emergency Medical uh, Treatment and Labor Act that passed in the early 1980s. Uh, it was designed to stop patient dumping, uh, and it requires hospitals that participate in Medicare. Uh, to provide stabilizing and emergency care for anybody who comes to the hospital, regardless of the ability to pay. And so, you know, emergency departments have really become known as the safety net of the safety net. However, with those successes have come challenges, and many of you have probably experienced this. Our emergency departments are crowded. Many patients come, and there are many visits, as I pointed out. Since the 1990s, the number of hospital inpatient beds in this country has actually dropped while the number of emergency department visits and the population in general has grown. And this has led to a problem of hospital boarding where patients who are admitted to hospital have to stay in the emergency department for prolonged periods of time and even start their inpatient care in the emergency department. This has all resulted in long waits at times for emergency care. And it can be expensive, obviously, to run an emergency department that has to have a CT scan, an MRI scan available, technicians and nurses available 24-7, and specialists, cardiologists, neurologists, uh, and trauma surgeons available 24-7. Uh, this was a cover in 1990 from Time Magazine, emergency, overwhelmed and understaffed medicine's front lines are collapsing across America. And then this uh, cover from U.S. News and World Report, 10 years later in 2001, this was actually published the day on September 10th, 2001, the day before the 9-11 attacks uh, about the crisis in the ER. And there was a second report that came out from the National Academy of Sciences in 2007, looking at emergency care, hospital-based emergency care at the breaking point. So if you were to, not, to talk about the history of emergency medicine, they were really bookended by these two reports from the National Academy of Sciences. The 1966 report that really talked about the need for better training and emergency, better emergency care systems in our country. And the 2007 report, which really reflected on the challenges now faced by a very successful rollout of uh, an improvement in emergency care uh, uh, in 2007. So as many of you know, there have been a lot of efforts to address some of the challenges that we've seen. We've seen the rise of retail clinics that are walk-in clinics like CVS's Minute Clinic. We've seen the rise of express and urgent cares to take care of lower acuity problems that often present to the emergency department. Uh, we've even seen the creation of emergency departments not attached to a hospital, known as freestanding emergency departments. These aren't legal in the state of California, but they are legal in a number of other states, including Texas, where these uh, uh, sort of hyped up urgent cares, uh, but not attached to a hospital, uh, have been created. And we've even seen the creation of virtual, uh, of the ability to do acute care through telemedicine, where you don't need an actual physical site, but you can uh, relay to a doctor or a provider of some kind through your computer to receive care. But these itself uh, have some challenges. So it can be difficult even for a seasoned provider, emergency provider to distinguish between minor illnesses and more serious conditions. You know, that chest pain could be just indigestion or it could be a heart attack. 
uh, and it's often hard to delineate that difference. So I think, you know, it's challenging for patients to navigate. Do I go to urgent care or do I go to emergency department? And some of the questions you need to ask would be, what's the staffing at the site that I'm thinking of? Is it staffed by a physician? Is it staffed by a nurse, like many minute clinics are? Uh, is it staffed by what's known as advanced practice provider, which is a nurse practitioner uh, or a physician assistant? And what is the oversight uh, of that provider in that setting? The other thing to ask about is resources. What sort of the laboratory capability, if I need lab tests, are there point of care tests for strep tests, for example, or are there more advanced lab tests available at the site that I would need in case I were dehydrated or I needed some evaluation of my heart uh, or, or respiratory status? Uh, in addition, related to that is what is the imaging capability? Uh, many urgent cares, but not all have x-ray capability, but very few have ultrasound or CT scan capabilities. And these are all important questions to ask when thinking about which site to go to. And finally, what's becoming more important is to ask, is this site that I'm going to link to my primary provider or my healthcare provider? Is it part of a network where my records or what happens here at this site will be relayed to my provider, uh, my primary care provider, or the hospital that I usually go to, or is it fragmented? And no one, no other provider that cares for me uh, will have access to the information or what happened uh, at this site. So what is the future for emergency? Even with these alternatives, what will happen with emergency medicine? I think there are two curves that everybody needs to keep in mind with in terms of emergency medicine. And you'll hear more about that from my colleagues. The first is the aging population. We're all aware that the, the, the baby boomer uh, generation is retiring. There's going to be a rapid growth in our the population of seniors over the age of 65 and over the age of 85 over the next decades. And, and, and we project that there's going to be at least one visit for every two of those Americans on average right now. So as that population rises, we should expect to see more emergency department visits from seniors. The second is really a reflection of the success of the American medical system. That is, people are living longer with the chronic diseases, in, in, in particularly the big four chronic diseases, cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and respiratory diseases, but other diseases as well, including neurologic diseases and dementia. Patients with more chronic conditions living at home or other settings, when they have acute exacerbations of their conditions, they're gonna to come to the emergency department for care. And they're gonna be complex and they're gonna be challenging workups because of these underlying chronic diseases that patients have. So we'll be seeing more patients uh, ba based on these two curves here. And you're going to hear more about that from Dr. Coyne and Dr. Tolley in terms of how we're preparing for that. Patty mentioned the, the impact of COVID, and it's been interesting this past year to see what happened in emergency departments. As she mentioned, we prepared for a wave of patients who came, and they did come in surges. But our overall census actually dropped a little bit because people were quarantining at home. But now we've seen the second wave of patients coming in for care not related to COVID, but because they were they were unable to get to resources during the COVID period, or they neglected their chronic diseases, as I mentioned, and now they're having acute exacerbations of their chronic conditions. And we anticipate that there will be a fourth wave as we come out of quarantine and pandemic in terms of all the other issues that uh, uh, this pandemic has brought. Finally, just a few points on a few other things about the future of emergency care. I think we're gonna see more integration. So that is emergency care will be part of a network. So at UC San Diego, for example, uh, our physicians staff urgent cares and, and our nurses staff express cares, but all that information is linked electronically so that when you come to the emergency department, we'll have seen that you were at the urgent care a week ago for a condition. Or if you leave the hospital or discharge and you're at urgent care and express care, we'll be able, the provider there will be able to see that you were in the hospital and what medications you were discharged on uh, and that sort of thing. And I think it's important that wherever you go for your site of care, that it is part of your care network so that 
your providers can see what happened. As we saw in the 1960s and 70s, there's going to be regionalization. There's, we have a great trauma system uh, of which UCSD is part of in this region, but we also are part of strokes, uh, uh, recognized as a stroke center, heart center. And as more advanced care happens with these diseases, you're going to have centers of excellence of which UCSD fortunately is part of. Uh, emergency medicine is going to focus more on prevention. We're going to work on reducing hospitalizations and return visits to the emergency department. So, for example, in the past, if you fell and broke your arm, we just take care of your broken arm. But now we're going to perhaps have a social worker see you, a case manager, and physical therapist see you to see why were you, why did you fall? Can we reduce your risk for falling at home in the future or wherever you're living, and reduce your need to come back to the hospital uh, or to the emergency department? And finally, we're going to have a lot more innovation. You're going to hear about that. UCSD was in the leading front of bringing telemedicine for emergency care, particularly stroke uh, patients, uh, and into the emergency department. Uh, and Dr. Coyne and Dr. Tolley will, will uh, tell you a little bit more about the innovations we have focused on senior care, uh, as well as chronic diseases like cancer care. Uh, and with that, I'm going to stop my share. And uh, I, it's my honor to introduce one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Chris Coyne. He is uh, uh, one of the faculty in our department uh, and is also the director of clinical research for the emergency department. And one of his areas of expertise is actually uh, uh, treating and managing oncologic emergencies. Uh, so Chris, I'll turn it over to you. So thanks for having me today. It's quite an honor to come and speak to everyone. Um, as mentioned by Dr. Chan, uh, my name is Chris Coyne and I'm an emergency physician here in the department. I'm also jointly appointed in the Department of Radiation Medicine and Applied Sciences. And today I'm here to talk to you about tailored oncologic emergency care. Why is it important? And how are we advancing the field here at UCSD? So I'll start off with why this is an important field and how the landscape's changed over the last several years. And then I'll end my talk with a discussion of what we're doing here at UCSD. So why does oncologic emergency care matter? Well, uh, it is a growing issue in our ERs. So just a couple of years ago, a report came out saying that there were 4.5 million visits per year um, at UCSD, um, or sorry, in, in the uh, United States. And um, two thirds of those led to uh, hospitalization. So how has the landscape changed uh, over the last several years? So as cancer care improves, patients with cancer are living longer. So we're seeing elderly patients with cancer in our ERs and also the um, general prevalence of, of cancer in our ERs has gone up just overall. With novel therapeutics, we've seen novel complications. So there's new complications from these therapies that we have to know how to identify and treat. And then finally, there are new regulations. So there's been a push uh, for more outpatient and observational management strategies. So we've had to adapt to these new regulations uh, in our emergency departments. So how are we advancing the field at UCSD? First with cancer immunotherapy. So we have created uh, new mechanisms for improving the management of immune-related adverse events, or IRAEs. So what are our IRAEs? So immunotherapy uh, generally is talked about in context of checkpoint inhibitors or CAR T-cell therapy. These things turn on the immune system uh, to fight cancer. However, there are some complications where that turning on of the immune system can actually lead to inflammation in any organ system in the body. So on the left-hand side here, you see uh, different organ systems that are affected in terms of uh, incidence. On the right-hand side, these are fatality rates uh, from these inflammations related to checkpoint inhibitor or CAR T-cell therapy. Um, so we have to know in the ER how to identify these things and how to treat them rapidly because if they're not identified, 
then they can be fatal. So what do we do here? We have created um, basically an informational pop-up that comes up for all our ER providers and uh, inpatient hospitalists that alert the provider that this patient is on a checkpoint inhibitor and that we should look into even subtle signs of inflammation uh, so that we can identify these complications. So when we did a QI of this, we found that this intervention actually significantly improved outcomes. So we found that patients who benefited from this pop-up and where the provider actually used it were admitted to the ICU less frequently. Uh, If they were discharged, there was a decrease in seven-day ED return visits, and also importantly, a decreased 30-day readmission for these patients, so significantly improving outcomes. Next, streamlined oncologic emergencies observation care. So what do we do here? So over the last couple of years, um, I collaborated with, uh, in our department, collaborated with uh, Dr. Califano over at Morris Cancer Center to create streamlined pathways for specific oncologic emergencies, where basically a patient could be um, seen at the cancer center and rapidly come over to our ER uh, in a way that actually uh, bypassed the triage, uh, the normal ED triage. And also they went directly to a bed and did not have to stay in the waiting room. Uh, This actually decreased our admission rate by 11% overall for cancer patients, and which this equated to uh, 104 prevented admissions if extrapolated to the year. And this is just in our initial pilot period, and we actually streamlined this even more. uh, And next time we look at it, we're anticipating seeing an even greater amount of uh, uh, decreased admissions. And finally, um, this is very important to me. This is an area of my current research. It's patient-specific cancer pain management. So pain is one of the most common reasons for patients with cancer to come to the ER. And unfortunately, in many cases, um, they don't receive adequate analgesia. And that's not the fault of any provider. It just has to do with the fact that many of these patients are on chronic opioids and have a significant tolerance. So we, we needed to find a way to individualize their care uh, and provide appropriate analgesia. So this was a collaboration with our uh, pharmacy uh, colleagues at the Cancer Center, also um, with IT, to create essentially a background um, module to create a, a more appropriate analgesia for each patient individually. So what this does uh, is it actually identifies if a patient has cancer. It will then take in their home opioid meds and calculate what a specific dose should be when the person comes to the ER. So once a ER uh, doctor orders a dose of pain medication, it'll actually calculate what the dose should be and recommend this uh, to the patient, uh, to the provider. Um, it also has built-in safety mechanisms like um, entitled CO2 monitoring, pulse oximetry monitoring, and an opioid reversal agent. And again, we saw a significant improvement in outcomes here. So there was a 33.3% mean increase in medication dosage, and importantly, a 17% decrease in admission rate for these patients that came in with pain. Um, So not only improving their analgesia, decreasing suffering, but also decreasing admission rates. All right, in conclusion, patients with cancer utilize the ED at high rates. Novel therapeutics and the associated adverse events require innovative solutions. And individualized streamlined care is the future of oncologic emergency medicine. That's it. Thank you so much. That's my, uh, my son, Wesley, who was just born two weeks ago. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, Patty and Dr. Brenner, for the opportunity to present uh, this today. Uh, my name is Vaishal Tolia. I'm the medical director for the Department of Emergency Medicine and the Gary and Mary West Senior Emergency Care Unit. And I wanted to talk uh, today about advances in our uh, technology for the West Senior Emergency Care Unit. 
And as Patty mentioned, we're very proud that we're the first uh, level one geriatric ED, not only in the state of California, but among the first of three hospitals uh, in the nation. And when we got accredited, it was really more about uh, how we implemented different workflows and processes and really changed the culture with our team uh, to tailor our care for seniors and really optimize uh, the care that we deliver for our senior patients in the emergency department. And the reason that this is important is, as Ted mentioned, the population uh, is rising in the senior uh, demographic, uh, and a lot of these patients are using the emergency department with more and more frequency with those complex conditions that, that were mentioned earlier. And what we've noticed because of that is that there's a lot of avoidable hospital admissions, and this demographic ends up having a large percentage of uh, our hospitalizations. So we saw a trend really nationally where seniors, uh, you know, not only coming to the emergency department with increased frequency, but a need that was unique to seniors and that we needed to tailor care specifically for that population, because our goal really was to provide higher quality and higher value care uh, for that group of, of people that really need um, some, have some unique needs. And, and really with the ultimate um, strategy to, you know, keep patients at home if possible and reduce hospitalizations and readmissions. So the American College of Emergency Physicians created an accreditation program. And as we partnered with West Health, we became one of the first accredited geriatric emergency departments in May of 2018. And then we built our beautiful new space as part of our emergency department in La Jolla uh, in early 2019. So what happens when patients actually come to the emergency department? As, as per standard process, patients have to come in through the main entrance and be registered. And part of registration and then ultimately being triaged, there, there is a risk stratification that happens in triage. And all seniors over the age of 65 uh, are screened with uh, a tool called the ISAR, ISAR tool, which is the identification of seniors at risk. And that helps us know which patients uh, that may need additional care and additional screening uh, to determine if they have other conditions along with the reason that they came to the emergency department. So then ultimately patients are placed in a room, hopefully in our geriatric emergency department, depending on their needs. And then not only evaluated by the physician and the care team, but also by one of our genie nurses or geriatric emergency nurse experts. And that genie nurse then does advanced secondary screening and is able to provide resources and even bring resources to the bedside. So some of the things that that genie nurse screens for are functional status, mobility, cognitive impairment, depression. Uh, they involve a pharmacist when patients are on multiple medications, but they even go a step beyond that and, and look at the strain that the caregiver might be facing, as well as the need for advanced care planning and palliative care in some instances. Now about our space, we have this beautiful 19 bed um, senior emergency care unit. And one of the main areas of focus of technology in this space was to limit sound. So all of our walls and ceilings have sound absorbing material to reduce that ambient sound. And in between our patient rooms, we actually have full height walls to reduce that noise level. The picture you see here is of our nursing station, which you know has a, a glass enclosure, but we can see patients, but there is very little sound transmission. So that entire space ends up being one of the quietest emergency departments that you may have ever been in. And we, we utilize not only sound reduction, but improved sound technology in each rooms for patients that may be hard of hearing. So we focus the sound at the bedside. 
In addition, we have some non-skid floors, wide walkways for patients when they're walking around so that there's a comfortable, clean appearing space that allows for mobility and further evaluation. Our patient rooms themselves are much larger than the typical emergency department room. There's space for a caregiver. All the tiles in the, in the room are acoustic tiles, which absorb sound and really keep the environment calm and quiet. One of the really neat features is the LED lighting. So the lighting actually adjusts slightly throughout the day to mat match circadian rhythms and actually filters out some of the blue light that can affect sleep-wake cycles as patients are uh, recovering from their, their, you know, whatever their acute presentation might be. There's a lot of equipment in the room as well, but we've done our best to reduce the alarm fatigue that can happen uh, and cause anxiety. And then we have art from Aaron Chang in each room and the hallways, which provides some orientation to uh, the space in La Jolla, as well as functioning as a sound reduction um, material in that room. We have space for caregivers to have conversations with the care team and even just to, to step away a little bit uh, and get their thoughts collected and you know, spend time on the phone or whatever they need to do um, to help assist in the care of their loved one. One of the major areas that we focused on for quality improvement was in medication safety. And what we did was we used the American Geriatric Society BEERS criteria, which is a, a list of medications that may be harmful in seniors. And this is a real-time alert to clinicians that provides alternatives to medications as well as suggestions for uh, adjustments in dosing. And this has helped tremendously reduce the frequency of medications that, that clinicians that were previously using that could be harmful to seniors as well as more appropriate dosing for seniors. So with all these efforts in, in optimizing our care for seniors, we've done, you know, collected data, done lots of research, presented uh, our research nationally, and now we're expanding how we uh, care for patients and what we've learned to our other sister UC hospitals and beyond. And with that, I'd like to stop and then introduce uh, Dr. Zia Aga from West Health. Hi, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Tolia and, and UCSD Health uh, for your partnership and your commitment to really create a one-of-a-kind GED experience here in San Diego, um, not only to serve the community here, but really to serve as a model of care for our city, our state, and indeed the nation. Uh, I've been tasked to talk about some of the work we have been doing with our partners, including UCSD, on how to bring this level of care to all seniors across the nation. Before we talk about you know, how to expand this model, I do want to emphasize some of the points that Rachel uh, has raised. The GED truly is a person-centered model of care. It is designed to address not just the medical, but also the social and behavioral needs of our population of seniors. It leverages, like Rachel pointed out, comprehensive screenings and a whole person approach that leverages tools like care coordination, transition management, and an expert team of interdisciplinary uh, providers, including social workers, MDs, RNs, and case managers. And what we are driving towards is, of course, a better care experience. The beautiful GED pictures you guys saw from UCSD uh, are, uh, you know, talk to that. But in addition, also improving outcomes and improving outcomes like hospital admissions and delays, delaying the admission to skilled nursing facilities. And there is data emerging from our work with UCSD and other partners that demonstrate that we are making progress on those goals. We shall touch on the work with ASAP. As we, as we sort of embarked on this journey, 
two and a half years ago of how do we scale and spread geriatric EDs across the nation. One of the first things that came to sort of for the forefront was how do we address quality and safety? And to do that, we have worked with John A. Hartford Foundation and ASAP to sort of resource, design, and implement an, an accreditation program that is focused on improving the quality of care for seniors when they come to the ER. Uh, there's a, you know, detailed guidelines and sets of principles and best practices that have emerged from that work. And in total today, there are 250 hospitals across the nation that have achieved this prestigious accreditation, which is broken into three levels, gold or level one. And there are only 16 sites and UCSD was one of the first to achieve that. And then silver and bronze. And the goal for having these three levels is to make sure that all hospitals, small and big, can participate in some form of quality improvement to address the needs of their seniors. Last year, this network of hospitals took care of 2 million senior ED visits. That's approximately 10% of all senior visits in the nation. Just here in California, there are 34 GEDs. And then if you look at the map, there are 39 states with at least one or more GED today. And the numbers are growing rapidly. Our goal is to achieve 500 accredited GEDs in the next two years, and also to expand it from a single um, hospital system to more of a health system perspective. And today there are 118 health systems that are participating in this work. I do wanna shift focus from the nation to back to where we are here in San Diego. I think the work we have done with UCSD and our local partners really has become a model public-private partnership. It started with our level one GED, uh, the first in the state, but first sort of, we, we say west of the Mississippi, Patty. You said west of New Jersey, I like that even better. Um, but that work has then led to the UC-wide network that Rachel talked about, which is gonna really become the engine for knowledge and data and, and best practices for our state, but also for the nation. And then last year, we had this unique opportunity with our health, with our health system leaders from, from San Diego, uh, the county, the Hospital Association of San Diego and Imperial County to really sort of put a flag in the sand to say that San Diego will be the first county in the nation to have all seniors get access to GED level of care. As a result, every hospital in San Diego during the pandemic has been working on getting certified and pleased to report that 12 out of 18 hospitals have received their certification already and others have applied and will hopefully get it before the end of the year. We've also been working with the Department of Veterans Affairs nationally to get 60 more GEDs, but here in California, nine more sites. And then I wanna also talk about this wonderful opportunity that is presented to us through the state. In 2019, Governor Newsom issued an executive order calling for the creation of a master plan for aging. While this master plan for aging is really broad and covers all aspects of aging, within the healthcare dimension, GEDs have been called out as a priority. We, along with our partners, UC San Diego Health, the Department of Aging, DHCS, and ASAP, are creating a bold vision to make California the first state in the nation to have all of its seniors gain access to GED level of care. This work will involve building a public-private network, providing resources, streamlined training, and access to special services, some of those that have been highlighted in the work at UCSD. We're excited about this work. We are proud of our partnership. 
and look forward to many more years of innovation. Thank you so much for your time. That was great. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate the um, incredible coordination and the progress we've all made. Um, I, I now want to um, turn this over um, to Shelley Lyford, who could not be here in person, but has um, recorded a um, discussion about um, investing in our community. Shelley Lyford is the president and CEO of West Health. Dr. Brenner, thank you. And thank you for convening today's important discussion on the future of emergency medicine. Without question, innovation in caring for our nation's seniors, beginning with visits to the emergency department, is taking center stage at UC San Diego Health, and it is making San Diego a healthier, better cared for community. In recent years, and certainly spurred by COVID-19, there is increasing recognition emergency departments need to take different care, better care of older adults. As we learned today, the unique needs of seniors are more easily met when the physical environment has been designed with an eye towards acoustics, lighting, safety, and comfort. Couple this with a specialized care team of nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and social workers, all communicating with one another and working together, and the results prove care is not only better, but hospital admissions are much lower. Now, I like that. I like the sound of better care, better health outcomes, and bending the cost curve. When it comes to redefining care for America's older adults, there is strength in numbers. While our senior emergency care unit at UC San Diego Health was the first facility in California and the first west of the Mississippi to be certified at the highest level of geriatric care, we never define success in singular terms. UC San Diego Health and West Health did not just want to be the first, we wanted to lead the way. Our goal has always been to create a model that can be replicated across the region, the state, and throughout the country. In a very short period, which included a 15-month pandemic, we are witnessing the fruits of our labor. Nowhere else in the nation has leadership at all levels come together in pursuit of GED goals that are good for seniors, healthcare systems, and taxpayers. Within San Diego County, our partnership has inspired every health organization and local government to commit to adopting senior-friendly emergency care. By next year, we expect to achieve this milestone. We will be the only county in America to be completely GED certified. Not bad for the fifth most populous county in the nation. We're working to achieve this very same level of result across the UC system. And state leaders, including the governor, are as excited as I am about this potential. In the next two years, with the master plan for aging as our guide, we could see geriatric emergency departments become the expected standard of care statewide. Without question, California has become an eminent leader in improving senior health in the country. Within the last three years, we've gone from one accredited emergency department in the state to more than 30. 
Not that I'm competitive, but we rank highest in the nation. And this is due in large part to UC San Diego Health and West Health's unwavering commitment to America's older adults. The momentum we are witnessing is not confined to California alone. The biggest names in medicine are joining this effort. There are now nearly 250 accredited emergency facilities throughout the country, and that number grows every single week. I always say living is aging and aging is living. When we invest in our aging population, we are in fact investing in our own families and communities and ourselves. The Gary and Mary West Foundation is so proud we launched this effort with a $12 million grant and together with the expertise and leadership of UC San Diego Health, we have fostered a national movement to improve senior care now instead of at some time in the distant future. As we learned from our panel of experts, this work transcends the four walls of the hospital. It is forcing healthcare systems and EDs in particular to think differently, to work differently. When patients are discharged, they need supportive services, whether that's a home visit from a social worker or a therapist, a fall assessment to prevent a hospital readmission, or a follow-up appointment with their primary doctor. This change in thinking is challenging the traditional assumption that care stops at the emergency department door. I am so proud of what we have accomplished. It is a testament to how innovative we are in San Diego. When history reflects on this movement, I am confident the West Health and UC San Diego Health Partnership will be viewed as the catalyst for change. A sincere thank you to all of our amazing, tenacious partners at UC San Diego Health, including Patty Mason, Dr. Chan, Dr. Talia, Dr. Colleen, Dr. Brenner, and so many others. Longer life, better care, lower costs. We have everything to gain by combining our knowledge and efforts. Momentum is on our side, and I know we will continue to use it to the advantage of older adults and their families. Thank you. I want to thank um, all of our speakers. This is really a lot of fun, but actually the most fun part for me comes next when we, uh, we field questions. So I have lots of questions that have come in. The first question for Dr. Chan, Ted Chen, and the question is, and this is what I was making a joke at the beginning, but how do you distinguish between urgent care and emergency care? How, do you, how does a patient know what to do about that? Uh, right. Uh, so this is a challenging question. As uh, uh, It can be a challenging problem for even uh, seasoned practitioners, as I mentioned. Um, and so, you know, in this state, an emergency department is tied to acute care hospitals. So we don't have freestanding emergency departments uh, in this state. And the things to look for are the staffing, as I mentioned, uh, whether it's emergency trained physician uh, and the uh, capabilities, what kind of labs and imaging capabilities are at the uh, site and, and whether it's open 24 seven, most urgent cares are not available 24 uh, seven. Um, so it's sort of the quick answer. How has COVID-19 impacted the emergency department operations over the last year? And, and what's 
going on right now? Now, what are the restrictions right now for visitors, for access, for wearing masks in emergency departments now? I can take that one. So, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, had a tremendous impact on not only our patients, our flow of patients and um, the safety of our staff. So we wanted to make sure that patients uh, will, were well cared for in a safe area, you know, it, whether or not we thought they had um, possible COVID-like symptoms, and then the rest of the patients that we were taking care of. And, and as Patty had mentioned earlier, you know, in many cases, we didn't know which patients had COVID coming in uh, versus did not. So that was a, a tremendous challenge for us. I think one of the other challenges, especially in, in patients that uh, may have cognitive impairment is that you know, we weren't allowed to have visitors in the hospital for safety reasons uh, because we wanted to limit exposure um, to family members uh, and the like. So, so that, that made it a little bit difficult for us to you know, get information and oftentimes family members are tremendous sources of information. So now that, you know, that San Diego has made you know, tremendous strides in, in vaccination and a reduction in cases, uh, we are now allowing visitors uh, one visitor in the emergency department, uh, and and there's different rules throughout the hospital. Again, depending on uh, the clinical condition, um, but that those those are some of many challenges that we faced uh, throughout the course of the pandemic. And masks masks are required everywhere. In in the, in the in the hospital, everyone wears masks, even everyone though wears a mask. No, that, that's really important. Th- thank you, Patty. If I may add to that, uh, please. Uh, the other thing that the COVID pandemic really highlighted is the shift around the ER is not the front door to the hospital, but the front porch. How do we use the ER to provide care in the community? And recognizing that this is really an an epidemic for seniors and they were the worst affected. A lot of activity and interest from ER physicians and ER departments on providing care to seniors in the nursing home, in assisted living before they come and hit the door and really open the opportunity to extend care beyond the four walls. Thank you. While I have you, there were some um, questions generally about what you do different in the emergency department and the senior emergency department. So our our senior emergency department is part of our um, La Jolla emergency department. So we have 50 total beds. 19 of those are um, is a dedicated space that is uh, unique and uh, specific for um, some of the needs that seniors have. The the geriatric emergency department concept is really beyond just the space. We're very fortunate to partner with West Health and have this incredible space. But really, it's about the culture, the team, and the workflow and processes that we have to allow things like better transitions of care, utilizing resources like physical therapy, social work, case management. So that can happen really throughout any bed in the emergency department. But we have a dedicated space um, specifically for um, seniors so that, you know, when they're getting all these services, as well as um, dealing with their acute condition, um, they can, you know, be in a, in a wonderful environment and uh, recuperate and, as, as, and hopefully not be hospitalized. So maybe you want to follow up about what, what was your vision to start this through West Health? Why did you think this was an important area to invest in? Yeah, uh, I think it's a really important area to invest in because the ER is sort of, we call it the central location, the central hub for how patients receive care when they have an interaction with the healthcare system. Um, Most admissions to the hospital come through the emergency room. Most patients who are going to be discharged from the ER, the type of care they're going to get after that visit is going to be impacted. So really the focus on the emergency room from that perspective was critical for us. And to leverage this, this sort of 
central area as a place to not just provide better care in the ER, but also onboard them into better care protocols, whether they're going into the hospital or back into the community. Thank you. Um, Chris, um, there was a question about um, advanced care directives and how is that communicated in the, in the emergency setting? So there's a, a few different ways. Um, so one, um, there's something called a POLST that many patients will come in with. It's a document that's usually brought in by, um, by an EMS provider uh, via the ambulance, which will, which will have a, pers a person's advanced directive or wishes. Um, also, uh, the EMR, the electronic medical record, will have documentation of what uh, a prior discussion was regarding the person's um, uh, code status or advanced wishes. Um, and that's uh, continually updated every time they access the healthcare system. Um, if somebody is not part of our system and they, and they do not have a pulse that's brought in by an EMS provider, then it becomes more of a challenging issue and, and more um, we'll, we'll have to primarily contact uh, uh, either talk to the patient, obviously, but if they're not able to discuss that with us, then to uh, discuss it with family members. So do you do that with every patient? I go through a goals of care discussion. No, I mean, no, no, definitely not. However, if somebody like uh, has cancer, uh, especially a more advanced form, then those discussions do happen in the ER. Um, there were some other questions um, um, about um, GEDA and what is available at other community hospitals in the San Diego area if they're not GEDA you know, certified. So the, 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 the simple answer for that is that our hope is that all hospitals in San Diego will be GEDA certified at least to level three. And specifically, when you certify at level three, you are committing to having at least one new care protocol or a quality improvement initiative that addresses seniors. And often these are things like addressing falls, addressing dementia. Uh, we talked about medications that Rachel talked about, but then also having some you know, simple resources like hearing aids for seniors so they can hear when they talk to the doctor, having glasses, you know, providing them with some comfortable um, mattresses. These are simple changes that can be made along with the clinical improvements that allow us to improve the care experience and drive better outcomes. Here's one for Patty. Um, so what happened when um, Scripps Health was diverting ambulances because of their, um, you know, hacking and um, how is that coordinated across the county? Is there some sort of county coordination for overall ED? And um, when you divert, what determines that? And what determines when you go back online? Yeah, the the impacted hospital, you know, we're a part of a big system together. So when the impacted hospitals um, can go, quote, on bypass, which means they won't take, um, you know, ambulances. And that's exactly what they did. They were on and off bypass. And there, there are different varieties of bypasses that you go on. And so um, we, we got information from the county specifically about when they were on and off bypass and, and how to absorb the, the volume. The, the communication wasn't perfect. Um, and it made it quite challenging on our teams because we weren't um, sure what we were dealing with every day. But, um, you know, we did the best we did we could. And, and you know, luckily, our, our emergency team was prepared to surge because they've been surging for COVID. Here's one for Chris. The question was, this is a hard question. What are the three things a cancer patient should know if they go to the ED? 
So I was just thinking about that. So uh, <laughs> there's a few there's a few specific things that would really help. Um, you know, here we're, we're benefit we have the benefit of EMR, but there are definitely patients that come into our system that have not been seen at at our cancer center. Uh, so the first number one thing is what what cancer therapy are you on? And when did you last receive it? That will change uh, potentially what we're going to be looking for, what complications you might have. Um, number two, um, just knowing a little bit about, um, you know, the course of your disease, um, you know, potential metastases um, and, uh, you know, what complications you've had in the past that will change how we treat you. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, just, I say this to everyone, but especially patients with chronic disease, you know, you do have to be your own advocate um, and know that um, not every ER that you go into will have specialized knowledge about your cancer. Um, so, you know, if you know, you might know a little bit more about the specifics of your therapy than, than the person that you're, you're going to see. So um, don't, don't feel um, hesitant about communicating um, your own health journey and, and what issues that you have. Thank you. Here's a two-part question for Ted. The, the first part is, what, what is your rights as a patient if you get picked up by an ambulance and you want to go to UC San Diego, but it's not the closest um, emergency um, department? What, what, what can you and can you not do? And the second part is, if you end up in a hospital you don't want to end up in because it was the closest hospital or somehow you ended up there, how can you help in your care? Well, what information should you provide um, to, to, to an ED that doesn't, does not know you? And, and how, how do they learn more about you? Right. So in terms of the first question, you know, patients do have rights to obviously refuse the transport if an ambulance arrives, provided that you're competent to do so. Uh, you know, the ambulances are, are, should take you to you, your primary, your network hospital. Uh, the only exceptions would be if you met criteria, for example, that you have to go to a trauma center because of the extent of your injuries, for example, and they'd say, no, we have to take you to a trauma center because the closest emergency department in your network is not a trauma center. And that would be the same if your EKG showed a significant heart attack that needed to be taken care of at a cardiac receiving center. So those would be the exceptions. Uh, sometimes if, if you don't meet those criteria, you do have to push the paramedics. Maybe they're at the close, close to the end of the shift. They don't want to drive quite as far. Right. Well, uh, the donuts are better. Uh, but yeah, you, you, know, you just insist all my care is at site. In terms of going to the hospital, you should always bring your medications or at least a list of your medications that you're taking to the hospital. That is probably the one thing that I would think Dr. Toler and Dr. Cohen and I agree can, you know, is, is, is one of the things we always ask, what medications are you taking? Uh, and then if you have electronic access, like what we have as a patient to your patient portal, the UCSD MyChart, that is helpful if you're at another emergency department, even if they can't get access our information through their regular system, you can access your information through your cell phone. And that is really useful for, um, uh, getting access to your prior medical history and all the other conditions that uh, uh, we can look at and, 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 and gain knowledge if, if we saw somebody from outside of our network. Vaishal or Chris, do you have any other thoughts? No, I think I think the my chart uh, is really important. You know what we often see, and we saw with the scripts uh, attack, is that we had a lot of patients from scripts who, um, you know, we didn't have access to their records because their computer systems were down, and we we didn't know what sort of testing they had done, and they had many of them had just been discharged from a scripts facility and really had no information. So that was that was certainly challenging. So any sort of recent hospitalization, recent visit, medication lists. Um, and recommendations from, you know, a primary care physician of, as to why you're coming to the emergency department is, is tremendously helpful for us. 
This is a follow-up to a question that we asked Chris earlier. And it's it's more of a comment than a question about, I, I, oh, I see uh, Michelle's also writing an answer. Um, but the, the idea about um, advanced directives and how you deal with that, because it's, um, you know, I, I like what this person wrote that they, they're, they're interested in living, you know, and, and that the, the first thing to be confronted with is direct is, is advanced directive puts them in the wrong frame of mind. Do you have any suggestions how we can do better? Yeah, that's definitely, um, I was just writing out an answer too. Um, that's always difficult. I mean, having those discussions, it's, it's always a balance of, you know, you don't, you don't want, you want to stay in line with somebody's wishes. Well, at the same time, definitely you don't want to, you know, focus on death and dying when they're trying to sort of fight this disease off. Um, how, you know, so there, there are definitely educational things that we, we've implemented. And that's one of my goals is to improve these kinds of discussions, especially with um, uh, when dealing with patients with cancer in the ER. I'd like and I could add, add to that, you know, the, we want to just create an environment where these conversations can happen. And, you know, for as part of our geriatric ED, we, you know, want to create a space and have opportunity to, you know, for patients to really focus on, you know, what matters to them. We're, as emergency physicians, we're trained to, to act, react, uh, treat, stabilize, uh, you know, and all those things. But, you know, really shifting our focus as we have over the last uh, five to 10 years, specifically when it comes to cancer and senior care, is to really focus on patients' wishes and for us to really have that conversation with people in terms of, you know, what their wishes are, what matters to them. Uh, I think that's tremendously important because we're, we're just there, you know, during that acute episode, we're not, you know, seeing these patients longitudinally. So we really want to understand the, the circumstances around what their needs are how in from the emergency department from emergency medicine how do you deal with healthcare disparities how, how do you handle that that anyone can come and come to the emergency room but that but then the follow-up will be different I, I realize this is probably the toughest question but someone just snuck it in and i think it's worth us discussing so i, I I'll yeah, start. yeah let me uh let me uh let me take a stab at that one uh, this is a very important issue. You know, we have relationships with uh, emergency departments. We staff the emergency department at El Centro, for example, a very underserved area. Uh, and we train our future physicians, our residents, uh, in, in in addressing disparities issues. I think, as, as I mentioned, we care for anybody who comes in regardless of ability to pay. And we work closely with a lot of the, uh, the uh, community clinics that help provide the primary care to underserved populations. We have very tight relationships, for example, with family health centers which is a, uh, you know, fairly qualified health center for uh, underserved. And we can actually get appointments for patients to get a primary care uh, at those sites when they are in the emergency environment. So we have like a lot of special relationships with our social workers to get patients who are underserved the care that they need. Uh, I, I do want to answer one more question, which was the Hillcrest and uh, <laughs> with oh, and our plans for Hillcrest. And maybe I'll uh, pass that one to Patty because there was that one question. This fall, we're going to be going to the regents to get approval for the phase one, which is our outpatient pavilion and our parking structure building. And we'll start getting the campus ready for ultimately the hospital replacement. Um, we've got some plans underway. We're really pleased that the state's uh, the governor's budget included a $30 million allocation of funds for the new Hillcrest Hospital, um, specifically the hospital, not the outpatient pavilion. So um, give, give us a little bit of a kick, kick start to get, get our planning going. So um, more, more to come. But what's so fun about it is that, and I really um, defer to our colleagues here, they get to reimagine completely how emergency medicine can get delivered because we are going to build a brand new facility and we can build it however 
we need to, whether it's geriatric friendly or, or uh, however we think makes the most sense. So it, it, it's going to be a fun project. On that optimistic note, <laughs> I, I would stop. I want to thank all the speakers. This really, this really is fun. The time went so fast. I really appreciate it. And um, I, this is such a great venue to get people engaged. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all. And everyone have a great day. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.